Today on the show, singer-songwriter Drew Holcomb stops by to talk music, songwriting, and shares the best meeting your hero story I've ever heard. Uh, All that and much more on episode 35 of Who Writes This Stuff. Hello there and welcome to Who Writes This Stuff. My name is Nick Flora. I'm coming to you from Pentaberet Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, in the lair of Osanga, uh, Andy Osanga Studio, actually, who's been nice enough to let uh, me use his space to do a few podcasts while he's out of town. Uh, speaking of space, uh, Andy is taking his new record, Leonard the Lonely Astronaut, that we've talked about a few times on this podcast, uh, on tour with a full rock band that I am a part of, actually. And uh, if you're listening to this in time, uh, you should come and see us play. That sounds fun, right? Uh, we'll be in Cincinnati on November 1st, uh, Chicago, November 2nd, Lincoln, Illinois, November 3rd, Indianapolis, November 4th, and Nashville on November 8th. So if you're in any of those places, uh, you should come to a show if you enjoy having fun. That is, if you don't like having fun, don't come because you will just hate it. So if you want to go to ilikeandy.com or andrewosanga.com or on Facebook, these dates and their details are smattered all over the place. Smattered? Is that splattered? Is it smattered? What's smatter? If you smatter something, I'll work this out later. Anyway, uh, also, as always, if you want to email the show, uh, you can do so at whowritesthisstuffpodcast at gmail.com. You can uh, write on Twitter at whowritespod or on Facebook, whowritesthisstuff. Uh, if anything discussed on this episode or previous one grabs you in any certain way or uh, makes you think of something or you relate to it, whatever it is, shoot us a line. Uh, let me know. I, I love hearing that kind of stuff. And, uh, and, and I might read it on the show if it's uh, interesting enough. So make it interesting, I guess. Um, no, it's okay. Either way, I want to hear it. So uh, also leave iTunes reviews. Uh, I say this every week, but if you go to the iTunes podcast page on who, of who writes this stuff and leave a quick review of this show, uh, I'll give you a shout out on my show, on the show that you just reviewed. This one right here. So uh, it, that always helps iTunes uh, know that we're here and other people who listen to similar stuff um, find out we're here and just helps everything uh, be better, I think. So also, if you want to be an even nicer person, you can donate on the podcast blog to uh, via, P- via, <laughs> via PayPal uh, to, to keep the thing going. Let's keep this thing going. It's a free podcast, and I, I want it to remain free, uh, but it does cost money to put on, and I am actually am kind of at like 90% left of, of uh, bandwidth space. I don't, I don't know words in technical terms, but uh, you know, I'm running out of space so to put these up, so I have a few of them logged, uh, backlogged, and I'd love to put them up, but I actually am running out of space, so if you guys have like an extra five, ten bucks or whatever uh, in your PayPal account and feel the need or the urge to uh, to donate it our way, you can go to the podcast blog, which is linked on all the social networking sites, um, and and do that, please. Uh, from the bottom of my heart, I, it would mean everything to me, and I would also give you a shout out on the show. There's nothing that you can do that I won't give you a shout out on the show for doing. Um, cool. All right. Well, with all that out of the way, uh, today on the show, Drew Holcomb uh, joins me for a great chat, and uh, I, I really had a great time. I, d- I didn't know Drew very well, uh, only by reputation, and uh, his I know a little bit of his music, and uh, but I, I hadn't, you know, it's one of those guys that you just don't hear anything bad about, like as, as far as a, being a dude, and uh, really good guy. Uh, he did not disappoint. We had such a fun talk. Uh, so you know what? Enough of this jibber jabber. Here's my talk with Drew Holcomb. 
one of those weird things where like when you hear somebody's name and you're like I think I think I know who that is but definitely through Young Life and and uh, I don't do anything through Young Life but um, I went to I guess a benefit last I wasn't even that it was this year here in Nashville yeah 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 we, one of, we played yeah where you guys yeah. played and uh, I think that was the first time where I was like oh like I get it all pieced together yeah and you and your wife played and uh, so but uh, this is kind of a, a weird question to start off with but where'd you come from Memphis and I mean that's geography where I grew up uh, but I grew up kind of uh, in this very big boisterous uh, loud a lot of people, family. Um, I have one of 28 cousins, and wow. we, all lived, we all grew up in kind of the Memphis area, and lived five doors down from my grandparents. And oh, that's the dream when you're a kid. Yeah, yeah. And my grandfather was kind of giant of a man. My parents were really yeah. great and a lot of fun. And then musically, uh, you know, I was probably just like any other kid in the 80s and 90s. Just you know, my my parents don't really they're not like super musical my mom plays the piano a little bit and that Mm -hmm. was really the only like home music was she would play piano in the mornings to wake us up oh really she would play hymns like oh really like old like kind of like late 19th century gospel songs yeah but then I was just like you know in the early 90s I got on the Nirvana Pearl Jam train of course then as high school came along got got into Radiohead and Mm -hmm. but then kind of got into the songwriter thing too my dad was a big Dylan fan so we would road trip. Uh, I'm one of four kids, and we had a big conversion van. And we just every summer we would take off for a couple of weeks and just go somewhere and <laughs> listen to a lot of a lot of Motown, a lot of. Was there a rebellion fun. against that in the kind of Nirvana Pearl Jam? No, phase? not really. I mean, well, there was also the Christian music stuff. You know, mm. I think the Nirvana Pearl Jam stuff was not so rebellion, rebellion against, against that. I just I didn't find <laughs> a lot of. I didn't personally find a lot of value in a lot of the right. in a lot of the big pop Christian stuff, and it wasn't necessarily that I think that stuff is no, no. I, just and wasn't, I, wasn't I was kind of raised on that stuff, and I, I'm. It's always fun to talk to uh, other musicians and kind of see, yeah, because <laughs> I've even had people who were you know in the middle of it, uh, even like Osanga who were sitting in his place, like he was kind of in the middle of it, and he's like, it was ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It, it, there's something about the, uh, the 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 polishedness of it that to a 16 year old guy just isn't really didn't have appeal. When that's you, very true. You know, you got the angst of Eddie Vedder singing. It's just like, yeah, no, that's my stuff. That's my guy. You know, that's my guy. I'm with him. <laughs> uh, yeah. Sorry, so. Stephen Curtis. Yeah. Maybe, no maybe next time. You know, go West, young man. Sure. Or you know, daughter and better man. Oh yeah. Stuff. You know, just there was something that spoke to me in that in that strangely enough I never my brother was really into all that stuff and I I I don't there wasn't any rebellion I think I was just scared of it but now like going back and listening to like I want to listen to all these bands and these artists that I skipped over because for whatever reason uh, and mainly because my parents were like just stick to this this Christian stuff going back to it now it's as an adult uh, I even now feel like they, he might be my, one of my guys. Like, yeah. I'm just like, wow. Like, yeah. it's, it holds up. Especially, have you seen that Pearl Jam documentary? Not like, yet. PJ20? No, I've been wanting to see it. That, that's where, like, I kind of started, mm-hmm. which is weird. It's, all, it's not even a year old. But just watching that and be like, oh, man, these guys have yeah. been doing this forever. Yeah. And they've been great forever. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, it's funny because my parents were, like, they're really great people, but they did get caught up a little bit in the whole, like, censorship, break your kids' records if, they, yep. if they're not, you know 
whatever. You know? mm-hmm. So there was some of that. I think now, you know, we talk about it now and kind of laugh about it, you know. Uh, but it was definitely, it felt kind of sneaky to like go out and buy a, a Pearl Jam record because your last Pearl Jam record got broken over your dad's knee. Yep, yep. You know, but really other than that, they were super supportive. My parents bought me a guitar when I was in eighth grade and, you know, were very encouraging of me playing music. And so I started out playing from a young age, but I'd say like, you know, when I really started listening to music was probably middle of high school. Yeah. Like most people, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And before that, it was the Dylan and the Motown and like whatever the parents were giving you. Yeah. Which is all that's a, that's a really good way to go. It could have come way worse for you. Yeah. Right? As far have, as well, that was parents. more that was more <laughs> my dad's side. I mean, my mom liked that kind of stuff, but she was definitely more into like the Steve Green, sure, Lauren L. Harris, kind sure, of, <laughs> kind of side yes. of things. Where did uh, performing and or writing or all that stuff like did it come from? Your parents buying you this guitar was that kind of like that was part of it. I didn't. I didn't immediately, I was never that kid who like came home from school, threw his backpack down and ran upstairs and played guitar for four hours. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, I was into, I was into it. And then all of a sudden one of my best friends, he started playing guitar and he picked it up way quicker than I did and like really got really good at it. So, I, but I didn't, I, really it was, guitar was just kind of a fun thing that I did and I, I was into it, but it wasn't like really that much of a huge part of my identity. I was like, you know, kind of student council guy and oh really played some sports I and mean, i was like kind of back up on the soccer team i was not like a good athlete but i put but i was on the team sure uh and then but i was really into like i'd go we go to a lot of concerts I and mean, memphis has this thing called music fest and i remember my sophomore year it was the first time my parents let me go downtown by myself and we went and saw ben folds and mm-hmm. uh, ziggy marley and the whalers and i was like wow this is amazing you know was it ben folds five at that point it was yeah that's so five. that's great yeah it was great I remember, like, he sang the line about, you know, don't forget to give me back my black T-shirt. Right. So he throws a black T-shirt on stage, and he rips off the shirt he's wearing. And throws it and on? throws on the black T-shirt <laughs> and goes back into the song, and the crowd goes crazy. And it's just like, wow, this is like a really, you know, there's something magical that can happen at, the, at a concert. Yeah. So I started going back to that every year, and then I would go see shows at a place called The New Daisy mm-hmm. in Memphis. And uh, this band called Lucero, I saw uh, their first show at this place called the high tone which then became a big part of our story later on but so i started to kind of slowly like inch my way into like where live music became a big part of what right. what you know who i was and then in college in knoxville i started going to shows all the time laughter is the only thing that'll keep you sane in this world is crying more and more every day Don't let evil get you down in this madness spinning round and round. I want senior year of high school uh, in the spring a friend of mine who was a freshman in college you know he was you know oh my gosh he's in college and he comes back with all this new music and he starts playing this David Gray record Mm -hmm. White Ladder which at the time you couldn't even get it in the United States oh really so I went on like you know Columbia House and ordered it from the UK for $25 
you know, and then <laughs> I'd had it for two weeks, and then it gets released in the U.S. You know, and I right. was like, "What?" But that, but but I was so proud of it because it had two tracks that weren't on the American. Uh huh. Yeah. It was like totally like UK that. import. Yeah, like I feel like I was you know a kid in the '60s buying Beatles. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, I, I remember he he the same guy introduced me to Ryan Adams, and then he introduced, which then took me to Whiskey Town, and then that took me to Patty Griffin, and then that took me to Amy Lou Harris, and then I started that took me to Springsteen. And mm. then it took me into like deep catalog Dylan and yeah, all of real. a sudden like song world was just like exploding for me in college. Like all I cared about was the singer songwriter thing. Damien Rice came out mm. when I was in college and shortly after college, Ray LaMontagne, you know, I guess that was probably 2005. Yeah. And by that point I had already started doing music, but basically the early college years is when I really started thinking like, man, something about a song that can communicate to me an emotion that not like nothing else can I've always loved to read I was a big reader in high school and mm-hmm. college and you know story was always a big thing for me you know I was the guy in the you know the AP English class that read every single word and oh really loved to write the essays and like dive deep you were that kid okay. I was that kid yeah I love school still still do interesting yeah it's always interesting to meet a uh, artistic person that like that loves school which is actually more common than than is uh, perceived I think by most people yeah, I think that's true. I think everybody thinks that the artist is just a kid who's like sitting in the corner and all he wants to do is go home and play guitar. Getting out of here. Yeah. yeah and that's the not kind necessarily of always. No. Uh-uh. Yeah, I was not that kid at all. I was like kind of like Mr. High School guy. You know, like I liked high school. I thought it was a good time. You know? <laughs> that is really, I feel like that's rare. I rarely hear that. Yeah. As far as, you know. I was you, not like the guy who like hated my, my, my day and so I went home and poured it all out into a song. That didn't happen until college. Okay. Now, one ma- major like thing that happened to me in high school that I think has really defined not just my music but me personally is I lost a brother mm. in high school from uh, complications with spina bifida mm-hmm. and so that just like the, I think the reason I made the switch from like the the rock stuff into the songwriter stuff was that I was just kind of it mellowed me out a whole lot and just kind of forced me to grow up in a sense right and just life got a little more serious after that and so Something about the whole songwriter thing just was just felt more appropriate to where yeah my heart and head was. So I, I started writing songs. That kind of leads up to started writing songs really in the middle of college, and I never had the dream of doing music. I never was the guy who was like, "Oh, this is all I wanted to do." I had like ten other plans. Oh, really? Yeah. What were what were some of those? I mean, the the big dream was to be like a history professor. I could see that. Yeah. You kind of have a, a professorial... <laughs> well, slightly balding and a big beard. The beard, yeah. 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 Like, and you're, you yeah. just have this demeanor about you that it makes you want to just pay attention and learn. Oh, I appreciate that. That's, you have a that's learning cool. demeanor. A learning demeanor. Sure. All right. <laughs> First time I've ever heard that. Well, yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> but I, I was, yeah. I mean, in college, I took all these history classes and I was the guy that, you know, just read every book and really mm-hmm. took it really seriously and spent a summer in France studying World War II history and... Wow. Uh, and then went and studied abroad in Scotland and Edinburgh. And while I was there was really when I started writing a lot of songs because I was over there. I didn't know anybody. And I was like, well, I'll just instead of sitting here feeling sorry for myself, I'm in this amazing place. I might as well make use of my time. Mm-hmm. And I brought my guitar over there, obviously. So I just sat, sat and wrote songs. And probably in six months, probably wrote like 15 songs. Wow. And looking back on, none of them are any good. Well, no, but you got to get that muscle going. Yeah, right? yeah, it's, it, that's you gotta exactly build it up. right. Yeah, you got to build it up. So that's kind of where the the 
just the the hobby of playing guitar right. and you know the the practice of writing songs kind of began for me was when I was living over there. Mhm. That's 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 always interesting that that uh that muscle I go back to that like I anytime anybody says oh hey, this is my first songs that I wrote and they're like pretty good. Mm-hmm. I, I I always think like that guy's got like 50 songs he's not showing me that he wrote before yeah. that. <laughs> Our guitar player, Nathan, uh, a couple of years ago, he's like, hey, uh, and he's always been an incredible guitar player, and he's great at piano, keys, mandolin, pretty much anything he touches. Mm-hmm. And he's like, hey, I wrote this song. And so I was like, all right. You know, like, oh, yeah, here we go. Guitar player right. wrote a song. Right. And then he plays a song called Good Time Girl, which was on our Million Miles Away album. And he mm-hmm. plays it, and I was just like, it's, it's like something that John Prine would cut. I mean, it's like that he would have written himself. Wow. And I just was like, I hate you. Like, <laughs> way too much talent in one person. And he's, that I know of, he's only written about six songs, and three of them we've put on our records. Just because that, that fine line between, like you're saying, to practice the muscle and then right. somebody who's born with it. Some people do. There's like some people who are born with I some know. natural talents. Like, some guys can get up to a mound and throw a 90 mile an hour fastball mm-hmm. without a lot of practice. That's true. And other guys can work their whole lives and never break 90. You know. that that's really true and that, I, I feel like that just goes back to the one of the best advice I ever got was just to play to your strengths and and to try it's hard because to try everything too it, and you might fail at like yeah the majority of it but you might find something you didn't you didn't realize yeah. you, that you had either and sometimes you lie to yourself about your strengths like I, I remember um, in the process of making a record sometimes you, you listen to yourself sing and you go oh man I, I totally thought I sounded like Otis Redding <laughs> On that. That's how I, when I wrote this song, I imagined it sounding like Otis. Right, right. And then you listen to it, and you're like, nope, not even close. And part of you just has to like, you know, own the fact that, you know, you're not Marvin Gaye, you're not no. Otis Redding, and and even on the rock and roll side, you know, write these songs, and I feel like had this Springsteen quality to them, this big anthemic kind of thing. And while you can kind of pull it off live, it still just felt like. I think I'm just imitating him, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't think it's, I don't think I'm doing a great job of it. Like people who don't know that I'm imitating him might think, oh, that's really great. But people who do know they're going, yeah, he's trying to do Springsteen. Yeah. And it's not, it's not, it's not as good as Springsteen. So finding your own, like being honest with yourself too, about what your strengths are, I think is a big, has been a big thing for me realizing like what, what you, what you do have and what you don't have and then, and then telling yourself the truth. You know, how how long did it take you to figure that out? Uh, it's it's, for me, it's still it's going. Still, yeah, it's a process. Ongoing. You know, I think for me, we just finished a new record that's coming out in February, and for me, I feel like this record is the first time that feels like a complete vision of something that I that I feel like I was I was honed in on it, and what didn't let in other periphery mm-hmm. uh, voices that that's that were trying to push it in a different direction or challenge it in a way that didn't feel right. If that makes any sense. Yeah. So I think I think certainly it's, it's a continued journey, but I do think there's like moments of arrival, you know. Even even as you continue, for me at least, as I continue to figure out what my strengths are and not. I, mean, I just did this tour with Need to Breathe as the first mm-hmm. of three. It's the first time I've played solo acoustic in like six years. Oh really? It was yeah. just you? It was just me. No band. No Ellie. And those are pretty big. Yeah, big rooms. Room. You know, big rooms full of people. How? Did, what was that like? It was incredible. Really? Yeah, and it took a few days to kind of get into it, but like learning how to how to try to command an audience's attention and, and like uh, the way that Bear 
the lead singer calls you, so you got to get up there and like demand the audience's respect, and not and don't beg for it. Mm-hmm. You know, get that's up, big. They get up there the and, and and do your thing with such confidence that they're like, I have to watch this instead of feeling like, oh, I, this poor guy's up there by himself. I better pay attention. That's a weird line. It's a weird line between being confident and being needy, mm-hmm. too. Because if if you go if you just go over the line a little bit, it's I feel like you're just bare. And people can see that, oh, that guy's really, he's trying too hard. He's trying way too hard. Way too hard. Yeah. He's over-enunciating. Yeah. He's, there's this little thing. It's such a tricky thing to figure out. Where he's like, eyes are scanning the crowd. He's, mm-hmm. He can he's can tell there's people over here talking and it's getting to him. Yeah. You know, instead of just like zoning in on the, on the people that are into it and like mm-hmm. communicating with them and trying to push those other people kind of out of your head. How quickly into the tour did you, did, did you start feeling comfortable in that? I mean, was it right off the bat where you're, uh, I think the, the crowd reaction was 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 great because it was okay. kind of immediate. But as far as feeling comfortable on stage, where I wasn't like the first three, probably the first three shows, I kind of felt sick before I went, right before I went on. It was also a short set. I mean, I only had thirty minutes, so you okay. you kind of have that. That's a good thing when you're playing solo acoustic because you know too much longer than that. And I don't care if you're James Taylor. Well, James Taylor was maybe an exception. <laughs> you probably don't. Most yeah. people, even if they're amazing by themselves with just a guitar. You're, you're going to lose interest after a while. It's true, especially if you if you get a whole show of it. If you know mm-hmm. there's going to be three or four people on a bill. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, I don't care who it is. I've been to I've been to shows where I went to go see the headliner. I didn't know who was opening, and there were two or three bands. I feel like there's a there's a span of time, and it might be like three hours or something. With just music in general, I'm just like that's all you can take. I'm maxed out. Yeah, yeah. It didn't it's used like to be like that. Fire hose. Yeah, it is. And it, especially if you don't like the taste of the water in the first or second act. Yeah, that's you're true. Like, oh, okay, I'm gonna go out to the lobby and check out the merch. You do? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so <laughs> true. But it's weirdly enough, as a kid, for some reason, I can handle that. When I first getting into music, I was like a giant sponge, and as I'm getting older, like I'm becoming the sponge is small, way smaller. It's getting smaller and smaller. There's only so much I can soak up, especially. And maybe that just comes with you kind of after a while. I mean, I've been attending concerts personally for 15 years. You've seen it all. I mean, there's. There's really nothing else, mm-hmm. you know, that's just gonna blow you away. There's still great performances, but as far as like hearing new stuff, yeah, it's well. And I think the, the the your your kind of um, tolerance level for mediocre goes goes way down. Mm-hmm. You know, as, oh, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, you know, and it's not that you think it's not that you don't think that the people are valuable or what they're doing is valuable. It's just that you 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 know what's good, and so it's hard to take in what is almost good mm-hmm. you know because you've been around especially here in town I mean we get everybody that you know a value makes makes Nashville a tour stop because it's A you have great venues you have mm-hmm. great audiences and the industry's here so you know Ellie and I have been here for six and a half years and we've probably been to 30 Ryman shows you know and so when somebody says hey my buddy's band's playing at the Mercy Lounge you you kind of go with like a little bit of like hesitation because you're like, oh man, I've been to so many good shows. But then you, you know, the good thing is that you can sometimes like, I think it's easy to, to, to go to that show and be like, oh man, that drummer is so terrible. But then you, the, the better way is like try to find something great. Like, man, that guitar player, his tone is really right. great. Or that one song, I feel like that is really the good thing. And, and, and some ways try to like go to a show with like a producer's ear and try to like find something good so that you can, Kind of offer something that's con- tricky though. Con- constructive, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's so hard. It's so hard to find the the good in a just mediocre. I'd almost rather just hear it in a, a god awful terrible band. Yeah, 
Like somebody just, it's something that's just kind of, eh, it's pretty good. Exactly. I'd rather watch a, a, a train wreck. Yeah. <laughs> than, than watch a train that's sort of, that's like, you know, it's doing its job, I yeah. guess. But, it, but in my own life, like, I'm really grateful for the people who showed up for my mediocre time. Absolutely. You know, because you can't, unless you like one of those people we talked about earlier, they just have it. You know, that, that factor, mm-hmm. that X factor. Most of us, it takes a lot of time to to grow and learn and do that thing but you can't do it unless people do show up yeah for your years that are not great when Friday's work day comes to an end I'll hang my hammer in the shed when the bills are piling up and the money's running low she'll lay me down and I'll forget Fragile as a flower Pretty as a pearl She's my good time girl mm-hmm. Somebody told me years ago you know I think when you first start out as, a, as an artist you're you're like so uh, you have so much anxiety about like why aren't people coming to shows I don't have any money I think my record you know you always think your record is better than it is mm-hmm. when you're when you're first starting out he said you know once you if, if you write the right songs if, if your songs are good enough they will do some of the work they'll do a lot of the work for you and I I always thought well that can't be true because I am so proud of these songs on my latest project why are they not doing the work for me mm-hmm. and then years pass and still working hard and, and having marginal success it, you know three or four years ago and all of a sudden put out a record that had two or three songs that really were really reactive um, both in like a, uh, a sense of being used on like TV and film but mm-hmm. then it shows like feeling like people were coming to shows because of certain songs oh interesting you know because like you know they had seen a video and they loved the song or the song had meant something to them and it, you know there was their wedding or you know mm-hmm. whatever variety of reasons that a song, somebody lets a song kind of tell part of their story and all of a sudden it started making sense to me like oh if I think about the music that I like you know I remember the first time I heard, heard Pat, Patty Griffin's song Mary you know about her grandmother mm-hmm. and it, oh, I was just floored so I immediately went out and bought a record I remember the same thing about um you know Ryan Adams when I heard Come Pick Me Up you know it was like Dude, that guy nailed what it feels like to be broken up with. Yeah, you know. Yeah, uh, I remember hearing Emmy Lou on the Red Dirt Girl, the 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 song about bang the drum slowly, and I remember thinking about my granddad and you know his like time in the in the in World War Two, and he didn't talk about it. And there's just so many things about. I think almost every artist I've ever, you know, really loved. It was because of a song. It's opened the door. Mm-hmm. The song is like the door into the rest of their catalog. And it wasn't because somebody had a cool... I remember the first time I... Mumford is a great example. Uh, the, yes, they got a great break. They were playing on Letterman. But this is way before they had blown up. And I'm just flipping through the channels. And I'm like, I hear this band playing on Letterman. And I was like, oh, this is really good. And also by the end of the song, I was like, that was incredible. What a great song. And yeah. I just totally delivered on it. You know? And I think so much of, at least in the kind of music that I like so much of what makes something work is just because of a great song. Mm-hmm. And that has been been so... I mean, our, because of 
songs doing the work, our career has, has grown exponentially past uh, anything that we had done just by trying to force it. And that takes time. All the different advices that people gave me, most of them I didn't listen to. I was like, no, I, I'm, I don't believe you, or it's different for me. Right. You know, I think so many people who are young starting out really have this just like deep-seated uh, belief that it's going to be different for them. Mm-hmm. And it, they're wrong. It's not going to be different for them. And even if they do have success early, that just means their, you know, post success frustration is going to come earlier. Yep. Yep. <laughs> that's, that's, experts. that's so true. Yeah. I certainly wish that I had spent more time on the craft than I had early on. But at the same time, the, the more time I spent on the craft was like uh, depositing money into savings when I needed. And I don't mean, I don't mean that literally. I mean, figuratively like putting, you know, working on your craft is putting money in savings, mm. you know, marketing and pushing and that is putting money in your checking account that you're spending. Oh, you know, and it's that's, like, that's true. You know, I've got to get people to this show because I've got to keep momentum going. And like, for instance, we just played in little rock. We got to go back to little rock. So we need to, we, we got to promote, we got to get people there. Yeah. Time's ticking. And it's right. like, you know, when you could be working on that song. And I, th- I do think, that is some advice that nobody really gave me that I might have maybe given it a second look. That's really good. You know, I, <laughs> for so me, true. I spent, I did this thing called NACA early on where mm-hmm. I basically went all over the country playing like campus coffee shops and playing in like community college lunchrooms. I want to hear about NACA because I just started doing it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I'm so interested. Well, it was brutal to be completely really? honest. I mean, That's what I've heard. It was the, the money was great and the people I worked with were amazing and really helped me kind of establish I learned how to be on stage. I learned how to earn an audience, even if the audience was like seven people. Who, and not really there to... They're not necessarily there. They're like, they're, yeah, they're not there because they think you're... They don't even know who you are, you know. They're just studying. Yeah, and, and the you're... school has this budget that they have to spend. If they don't spend yep. it, they don't get the budget next year. Now, at certain levels of NACA, that's different. Like some, some of the bigger schools and the ones with bigger budgets, they actually take it pretty seriously. But at the level I was at, it was like, you know, they were just... I was just some Joe Schmo that our, our agency, you know, happened to like my music and they pitched me for these things. Mm-hmm. And I did probably 180 of them in like four years. All, I mean, literally all over the country, driving to all the way to Brownsville, Texas, which is right the southernmost part of Texas. Right. All the way to Fargo, North Dakota, all the way to Maine, down to South Florida and Colorado and everywhere in between. Golly. Uh, you know, I did it to pay the bills. I did it because yeah. it was for the money. I was by myself on the road. When you're by yourself on the road, you're not feeling inspired. You're not going back to the hotel room and writing songs. You're going back to the hotel room and just turning on TV just to numb yourself yes. from the embarrassment that you just experienced because nobody cared about your music. Mm-hmm. So it's not a great creative space. Now, I did learn a lot from it. Now, the opposite you know, thing I could have done was you know, get a job you know, bartending or parking cars or sure. something like that. And work really hard on the craft of the song. You know, I don't know if that necessarily would have changed the trajectory and timing of what I, of the stuff I would have created. I, I do think, you know, I probably would have written better songs earlier. But there's no way for me to know that, you know. No. And I think we all kind of we do all kind of have to choose a different different paths. I do think just from a personal standpoint, being gone on the road by yourself for three years, you know, chasing a dream looking back on it I was killing a lot of other dreams you know dreams about having great relationships with friends and dreams about mm. going camping and 
you know, like just things that other, I was, I loved, I grew up in college and high school. I loved to be outside and camp yeah. and backpack. And I didn't do that for like four years straight. Cause all I was doing was just, Shows. just hitting it hard and getting on back, back, back then, you know, getting on MySpace and inviting people. Yep. And, and at, at some point you just have to learn to just turn it off or else you'll, you'll, you'll drive yourself insane. Yeah. How do you do that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so, I'm like, I'm, I go back and forth where I'm, I think I'm either all in. I'm really, I, I think that I think I'm better at juggling things than I am. Uh, so I'm either all in promoting and then I realize that I haven't touched a guitar in like four days. I'm like, golly, like, you know, and the worst thing is remembering that you haven't touched a guitar in four days right when you're about to sound check. You're like, oh no. Yeah, I've got to uh, play a show. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, oh yeah, this is why I do this. Like yeah. I'm not, I'm not my manager all the time. I have to be the artist too. It's hard because it's like that whole, I can't remember the, the term, but basically like whatever's the most urgent is the thing you're going to yeah, give your most time absolutely. to. And, and, and writing songs is never urgent. It's, it's a slow, it's a, it's a, it's a marinade. It's mm-hmm. a, you know, you have to, you have to let yourself turn everything else off. And if you've got five emails you haven't responded to and you're trying to sit down with a song, you're not thinking about the song. You're not thinking about creating. You just hear your email going off. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, I've got to respond to that. I've got to pay that bill. I've got to I know. email that guy that I said, it, we're going to do that thing. You know, it's yeah. just like yeah. kind of never ending. So that that's actually really good good advice. There's so many people who are like, "All right, we got the songs. We haven't played any shows yet. But we just need a manager and a label, and you know, let's make it happen for us." Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But there's no there's no. And it's really bad. It's bad business horse. too. You know, I think so many artists, at least in the older kind of paradigm, the older model, just thought like, "Oh, we'll just give everything to a manager and a record label, and, and then you will just make our music." And then, you know, they're the ones who you watch on VH1 about how they're, they're all broke. Yep. You know? They're yep. they selling out stadiums and now I know. they're money. I know. For me, personally, I don't have a manager, and so anytime I get frustrated, like, that's what I need, I'll just go and watch, like, one of those yeah. <laughs> like, documentaries. Even, like, there's a Hanson one uh, that a friend of mine is a big Hanson fan gave me to watch, and it's just about their frustrations over, like, trying to make a rec- one record and their label and their management everybody just like getting in the way and they wrote this record like four times over six years yeah. and so they basically made four records and no, did, nobody was ever happy except for yeah and nobody could get on the same page so they just had to eventually like break away from it and make another separate record on their own so wow. they had to throw away four records worth of material that's insane and they were I mean, it, it's maddening it makes you just want to quit the the business side of music and just yeah. move up in the mountains and play music for fun. Yeah, or be an accountant, you know, get a paycheck. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> like, oh, what's that like? Every other Friday, huh? That oh, sounds I, pretty you know, good. It's, it's, it's funny. I have, I would say most of my closest friends in town are not involved in music at all. Uh, one of them uh, is, is a salesman, travel, kind of travels around us, uh, products for like a um, kind of veterinarian supplies. And then uh, one of my other good friends does commercial flooring and another mm-hmm. one's a contractor. And you know, we, we have these great conversations where they envy what I do and then I envy what they do and we just laugh about the fact that, you know, the grass is always greener. You are a novelist of magazines You make me nervous You make my heart beat You are red and I see you black and white Did you, when I saw you guys, uh, obviously it was acoustic, uh, 
and then I heard your records. I was a little surprised that your records has more of a rock edge to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you get that a lot? <laughs> do people say? Well, that? I mean, most of the time we tour with the band. That's true. That's true. You know, yeah. So there's there's less of a distance. Do you guys have like a more rooty record? I know you do the that cover record that's more like that. Yeah. Well, actually, that's that our new record is that way too. Is it? I think Chasing Someday, the one that's kind of I, I would imagine you're probably referring to, mm-hmm. kind of has the bigger songs. Mm-hmm. You know, we kind of let a lot of other people's voices tell us how to shape that record, and okay, uh, I think it was good for us though, because it, it, it even though there's a lot of that kind of big rock stuff on, there's also some of the more mellow kind of rootsy stuff, and so I, I think for us, we needed to make that record to figure out how we're going to make records in the future. Yeah, you know, because it's got strings, and we, you know, like most records in that in that kind of vein, we edited pretty heavy and. You know, I'm a big U2 fan and Kings of Leon fan, and so mm-hmm. we made a couple songs that have this big kind of anthemic quality to them. And I think, you know, after touring the record for six months, we kind of realized, like, hey, you know what? I don't know if this is these songs are who we are, but the size of how we how we have recorded them is is cool, and we're glad we did it, and we wouldn't redo it, but we're probably gonna take it a little bit of a different direction, right, in the future. And so, um, the the one we just finished is definitely it's got a lot more space on the record uh, the tones are more roomy and and it feels more like a an older singer songwriter not not older like we sound older but just the, <laughs> the, the vibe and the tones are kind of more of a 70s oh yeah you know that's so i think that we wanted to make something that was kind of in the vein of what we what we do live and the, and, and serve the songs in a way that kind of felt like a cohesive piece i mean i wrote 40 songs for the record we picked 12. Wow. So. Is that normal? Do you normally write that much? No, I think last time we wrote like 20, 25. Yeah. And I did a lot of co-writes on Chasing Someday as well, so that's why there's like such a diversity oh, okay. of sound on it. That makes sense. In this one, there's no co-writes except for, there's two with Ellie and then one with Nathan, our guitar player. So we kept it all in-house. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like that was kind of where we wanted to, you know, that's one thing about Nashville I think that can be, I think it can be a good thing and a bad thing in that there's certainly a, a way of doing things here, you know, especially kind of uh, the way that people think about songs and the way that people, you know, kind of formula to song, you know, it's the kind of the, the, the pop formula, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, mm-hmm. bridge, breakdown, big down you know, chorus, down chorus, <laughs> big chorus. And we still have some of that. Some of that's great. I mean, some of that's the Beatles. You oh, know? yeah, it's absolutely. Like, but there's also, I think, a sense that. Um, I think sometimes people write songs here without necessarily running them through a filter of like, who, what is the artist trying to say or do? It's just all about the song. And I think it can't just be all about the song. It has to be also about how is this song going to be communicated? Because mm. yeah. how a song is communicated, the way it's sung, the way it's produced, uh, the, that artist and their, and their audience, I think those are important for me. They're important pieces of the puzzle. You know, so if I sit down with somebody to do a co-write and it's just like, I, I, I can't do it, I literally can't do it unless I know what it's for. Because otherwise I just lose my mind because I, I don't feel like I can write just for just for a void. Like, right. I want to know like, oh, we're, this is for a for TV a pitch or this is oh, for so-and-so's yeah. record and this is, uh, or like this is for the guy I'm writing with record or this is for my record. So do you have a hard time just writing just to jam? Mm-mm, I can't, I, like literally <laughs> I don't, just don't I, don't even, I just don't do it. And honestly, I don't really write that much with people anyways just because I'm only home maybe 100 days a year. And so if I'm going to write for 40 days a year, yeah, I, I t- typically kind of like to write for me. And I know that's probably not great business because I'm not writing for other people's records. Well, But, but it, it is kind of, at least at this point in my life, it's what I like to do. Yeah. And, I, and I'm 
you know, we work hard enough that we're able to do it that way. Yeah. Know? And you guys work hard. Like, yeah. it's, it's weird just following just following you on like social media I'm just like man they're you're killing it like you're always playing always shows always, yeah and then yeah. like going in to make this record and then well, did you, you make this record this new record did you make it pretty quick we did oh, six how weeks long okay yeah we, we tracked it in normal. 10 and 12 days okay and then there uh, Nathan and, and Andy the producer probably spent another week doing some like a couple random you know, like the, the studio we're using didn't have a great upright piano, so we mm. tracked on this big grand that they had, and then we redid it on like a good vibey upright. Right. We brought in a guy to play pedal steel on some songs, and you know, some of that stuff took another week, and then we had like three weeks for for mix. And why uh, why Memphis? Is it it's my hometown? Hometown. And uh, Ardent Studio just is this amazing big studio room that you can you know get for a great rate, and uh, I I also with the band. You know, my guys are not really like, you know, just random studio guys that come in and play. They're, they're guys that we've been playing together for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I think getting out of Nashville, getting away from our trappings of home, trappings of friends, trappings of phone calls, hey, what are you doing later? Right. We were able to really camp out and and dedicate a couple of weeks to the making of the record. And that was really important for me. Yeah, uh, we tried that on the 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 uh, live and studio thing, mm-hmm. and we loved the way it felt. And we did that record in two days. Oh, really? Yeah, we tracked five songs the first. Day. Well, I guess it's live in the studio. Five so. a second. Wow. And, uh, and then we, I think we mixed and probably and, and everything was one take. No, we didn't do any edits. We didn't do any click. Mm-hmm. We would do two or three takes of the song, pick the best one, mix it. Wow. Yeah. So there's that's no, awesome. There's part of me that loves. I love that. Yeah, I mean, it was very kind of old school. Way, yeah. way to do it. But we, you know, the band guys are super proficient and and pro in the way that they play. So, not every band I think could do that, and it sounded very good. But because I've got these great guys that right. are in the band, we were able to do it do it that way. So. And I guess it's not as risky playing with guys you're comfortable with. You guys know each other's cues, and mm-hmm. you know, yeah, you probably shoot a look. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, there's, there's and translate. That, making music in the studio is like it's like such a it's such a, a gift to be able to get to do that. I mean, that's yeah. I love touring. I love playing on stage, but I really love getting in the studio and seeing a song kind of take yeah. root. You know, songs like the seed and being in the studio is like the sunshine, water, and mm-hmm. watching it become you know that's so true something. Andy kind of introduced me to the idea last time we made a record together a couple years ago into like not com- not like polishing a song mm-hmm. until we get in the studio. He was like, you know, kind of know where we want to go, but like bring it in, you know, 70% finished yeah, and we'll kind of finish the rest. And that was terrifying to me because I'm, I over prepare for everything. Yeah. And I, I, in the past I had just like written songs and worked them out on the road for two years and then gone in the studio and, and it was just done, but there's no, you know, cause stuff does, it's a creative space. Things come up, you know, there, there are, there are moments that you, you want to capture and if it's so in like locked in the in uh position and there's no wiggle room especially in your mind like it's hard to yeah. be open to you know but, but all the all those songs i was just kind of like well they're kind of new i don't really know where they're going to go and then that really does allow it yeah to just like grow the rest of the way and turn into the song it needs to be yep That's, and yeah. and not be so precious and attached to it that, you, that you're not open to the idea of it becoming the song it needs to be yeah, because I mean, a song is it's not it's not just a one time consumable. I mean, it's something that is, you know, you put it out there and then yeah, you don't know what it's, it's open to interpretation at that point. Yeah, and I I love that, and I think that's 
Have you had people come to you with your own songs and be like, I love, or ask you, is it about this? And it's completely oh, yeah. not what you thought it was about. Totally. But, or people basically telling you what your songs are about, and maybe you hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah, or the funny, the, the, the funniest is when you go, like, somebody like will send me, like, hey, I looked up your lyrics for this, and this is what somebody thought they were. You know, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess I didn't articulate that <laughs> particular line very well because that is not what I was saying. I wonder if Bob Dylan gets that a lot. Oh, I'm sure he does, especially <laughs> live. You could basically make it, make it up yourself for his it's, live show. It's so true. That's what I've heard, especially yeah. now. I've, yeah, I've you heard can't. That it's... You could barely. I mean, I, I wouldn't guarantee you, like, I wouldn't bet money that I heard any particular word, you know, when he's singing. It's just kind of all over the map. When's the last time you saw him? I saw him at the Ryman. I don't know, three or four years ago, okay. the night that Jack White came out and played with him. Oh yeah, yeah, I heard which about was that. Amazing. Yeah, <laughs> Elvis, Elvis Costello played, opened. And Are you serious? Famously, so it was, it was pretty, pretty stacked. Yeah, there's the a few talented people in that group. Yeah. I guess. Yeah, just <laughs> a couple. Just a couple. That's amazing. Yeah. I Elvis Costello is one of those guys who uh, I would love to sit down and have a conversation with, but I was also I don't know if I want to. Because I just like there's it's not as much as intimidation factor, but there's some people you're just like I like the idea I have of you in my head. Yeah, like, I don't know if I need the real one. Well, you know he's got a TV show where he does like yeah uh, interviews and stuff. He seems like a pretty I haven't seen it, gregarious but, yeah. and fun conversation. It's on some weird station. Is it on? Yeah, I don't have it, but I've, I don't know. Yeah, I've seen a few I, episodes. Yeah, so it's just there, and especially living in Nashville, like there, I've seen people in real life that I'm like. Wow, when I was in seventh grade, I would love to talk to that dude, but like, I don't know. I'm just being in the same room is kind of like, okay, that's fine. Yeah. The fact that life has brought both of us together. Well, you hear like great stories and you hear horror stories. And I have a couple of friends who've met Springsteen and just said that he was just such a class act. Like, I've heard that too. Yeah. You know, just but I've ask, also heard the other end too. Ask questions. So, you know, I, I, I got to meet Ryan Adams one time and, and he was, everybody always had these terrible stories about what a jerk he was. And I, that was not my experience at all. Really? He was super kind, generous, talked for like 45 minutes. What was that uh, situation? How'd you get to meet him? I was him? playing in New York at this place called CB's Gallery and it mm-hmm. was part of the old CBGB's the on the Bowery. Was it 3131 yeah. Gallery? Yeah, yeah I played there before, gallery. yeah. 313, that's what it is. Yeah. And it's a tiny place. I mean, yeah packed is like 60 people and so when I played there were like 15 people there and there I knew every one of them um, I just gotten started and I literally was in the middle of playing was covering Sweet Carolina and he walks in the building no way and I was just like what is happening what did is you happening? see him walk in I saw him about 10 steps in and I was like that guy looks really familiar oh my gosh that's Ryan Adams and so I <laughs> I keep playing the song and uh finish and he sits down in the in the crowd which like I said wasn't very many people I play three or four more songs finish out he walks over and says nice cover and I said well thanks that's a great song you know what are, what are you doing here and he said oh I'm just walking around the neighborhood I'm coming back at 11 my buddy's playing so I just stepped in and uh, I'll, I'll be back later come hang out so then he leaves and I'm like oh my gosh he said come hang out yeah so I call my dad and he leaves like right after that and I call my dad and I said dad you're not gonna believe who's at my show and he goes Bob Dylan and I go, no, Dad, it wasn't Bob Dylan, like you know, the typical like dad over guess. Yep. It's like no, it was Ryan Adams. It was really cool. So I go to dinner. I come back later, and sure enough, he's there. His friend's playing. His friend finishes playing. Everybody's just kind of milling about. He finds me, and uh, we just talk for like 30, 40 minutes, and then the uh, sound man convinces him to get up on stage. And so there's by this point, there's like thirty people left, and mm-hmm. we're all sit down, and he starts playing some songs. And 
He says, craziest effing thing happened to me earlier tonight. I walk in here and this kid from Memphis is playing my song. He said, Drew, right? And I said, yeah, from the audience. Yeah. He said, come up here. Let's sing it together. Shut up. So I'm like, this, is, this is a dream you're again. Yeah. This isn't real. Yeah. I literally, I was just losing my mind. And I, I had only had like two friends that were still left. So I, I you know, I had them take, take I don't even get, still have pictures or not. But played the song with him. And then everybody kind of, he that was the last, of, he leaves and everybody leaves and that was it. And I was just like, I just got to play one of my favorite songs. You played My Sweet Carolina. On stage with Ryan Adams. At CBGB's, essentially. CBGB's, yeah. It was awesome. That's What What, what time, what year is this? What era? Let's see. Because there's a lot of Ryan 2000 Adams. and... 2004. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I was... I had literally only been doing music for probably six months. And <laughs> I, I was just like, this is... That story is unbelievable. It is. Unbelievable. It, it sounded like when you were Never telling, had anything like that happen since. When you were telling me that to just now, I was just like... No, he's remembering a dream. Like it sounds like yeah. a dream that would happen. Yeah, it was real. It's real as I'm sitting here. <laughs> it was great. I mean, it, it, it definitely at that point too. I, I when I first started music, I was like, I'm just gonna give this like a year or two. Mm-hmm. I don't really. This isn't my dream. And after that happened, I was like, man, maybe I should try this a little longer and just see what else happens. <laughs> that story is awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. A friend uh, of mine who was in this other band, he was at a gas station. And he walked past Dylan coming out of the gas station, two tour buses that he was on one. They pulled next to there was another tour bus. And Dylan's walking out of the gas station. And he goes, uh, I don't mean to interrupt you, Mr. Dylan, but... And then Dylan just goes, then don't. And walked right past him. <laughs> well, there's that. So not everybody's... Not every encounter with... Uh, you know, your heroes is always a good one. No, no. And that, that's and that's the thing that terrifies me. Like, you don't know... I was thinking about yesterday, I was at the grocery store and I was like, what if, what if I was, you know, at that level, like, what if I was like Springsteen or somebody? And I was in a, I was genuinely in a hurry yesterday and I was like, if somebody grabbed me and wanted to say something to me, I might be a little short with them. Yeah, sure. Like, you know, I don't, I I don't blame people for that as long as it's not like a consistent reality. Right, right. You know, I think some people just are that way all the time, but I have a lot of you know, in, in, living in Ashley, I have friends that work for people, and everybody of mine does sound for, you know, has done sound for McCartney and said he's just amazing, just super sweet guy. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff you love to hear. Yeah, I've heard the same thing about Paul Simon, like yeah. the Paul Simon and Talk Your Ear Off, it, like, yeah. in, like a great way. Mm-hmm. You do kind of, you, you start to accumulate stories about people, and generally you can tell after a handful of stories what the what the true story is. I think Ryan Adams, uh, the thing that hurt him was um, him having internet access. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) too much self-Googling, you know, when you're famous. Oh, yeah. It can be very destructive because, you know, any criticism just stings, you know. Mm -hmm. So I remember we played a college show two weeks ago and some guy from the college got on Twitter and was like, who the blank is Drew Holcomb and why did the college book him? You know, mm. and I, I'm like thinking to myself, like, I wonder if he knows that I can read this. I know. <laughs> Wait, did he at? Did you put your at? No, name he order? didn't. Okay, but I mean, that, I just search my name. Absolutely, yeah. Know, just to see what people are saying after shows and if you know if people enjoyed it or not. So, uh, uh, yeah, I do that too. But so you know, you, you have to let that stuff just kind of brush right off because that guy. I mean, it's not, he's not critiquing my music. He's critiquing the college for booking someone whose music he doesn't know. Right. That's not personal. 
That's a very yeah, diplomatic way to think of it. That's not the way I would have taken it. Well, I didn't immediately, but you <laughs> have to like coach yourself. You know, yeah. Like, okay. Not. I mean, I can't really honestly expect every person who encounters my music or encounters something that has to do with my music and be a fan. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's been a huge lesson. Like, and weirdly enough, taking me way longer to. to yeah. Get, hit that conclusion. I mean, not everybody think not everybody likes John Steinbeck. John Steinbeck's still one of the best novelists of all time. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that everybody has to like him. Right. I think they're crazy for not liking him because he's amazing. Right. But there is a level of judgment that comes out when you hear that. But but it's sure. art is stylistic and some stuff. Yeah, I got a massive way. argument with a friend recently about you know Michael Jackson and this guy thinks that he's terrible and I think he's great and. We both were literally so flabbergasted by the other's opinion that it, like, yeah, you, it, it, the conversation didn't even end well, you know? I don't understand it, how... It, I mean, you can say whatever you want about his, you know, personal dealings or whatever, but yeah. you can't you can't deny... Well, maybe you can. Well, he, you can. That you can. <laughs> I, I have a hard time. I'm on your side. I have yeah. a hard time. Like, it, I'm not a huge fan of his... Like, I don't listen to his music on a regular basis, but, sure. like, that guy did some amazing things. Yeah, that's what, that's kind of what I think. I, mean, I do think it's a little bit it's just kind of like, you know straight ahead pop music, but it's great straight ahead pop music. I had a hard time with the Beatles for a long time, which is a really unpopular thing to say out loud. Yeah, it is. Uh, but I, but, but we're done, right? Yeah, we're done. And uh, cool, <laughs> cool. Uh, I'd love it if we ended there. Right there. Uh, the reason is well, because my dad is a jazz musician, horn player. When the Beatles came around, rock and roll killed jazz. a lot of the horn section, especially jazz. Like you know, he played a lot of big band stuff, mm-hmm. kind of. You know, there was a shift, a notable shift. Yeah. And so he was, he raised kids to, to it was just the Beatles. The Beatles were, ruined. The Beatles were overrated. And then right, later right. in life, I kind of figured, and so I, I went out and spouted off that stuff, just like kids do at school. Yep. And way, once again, uh, way longer than I should have. And without realizing that, you know, and it, it, it took friends like, who were like, listen, we're going to sit down and we're going to listen to this. I'm going to explain to you how this didn't exist before this guy hit record. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, like put it into context. I was just like, oh, no, it, it isn't. I met uh, this very ignorant young guy recently who said that he thinks Nickelback is better than the Beatles. And that is the point where I realized that, you know, the demise of humanity is probably upon us. Probably. <laughs> like, it, it has to start there. It has to. Well, I, wait, how old is this person? He's probably 24. What? Yeah. I honestly expected a ten-year-old no, no, to s- say say such a thing. He's had a quarter of a century to to have a little wisdom and has not 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 picked any up. Well, we're. Ba- I wanted to end with, lately. We've been talking each one of the shows. Uh, I've been asking for uh, any advice as far as like bad shows go. Uh, it's kind of been a running running stream of uh, people with bad show stories. Uh, do you have any? Mm. any to contribute as far as a bad show or something that you sure. learned or how to deal with it anything in that realm sure well <laughs> always entertaining the worst ever was I was playing this place called 8th and Rail down in Auburn and I'd played there a lot and they had an interesting mix of people that would pay to come see me play and then people that would just come to the place because it's like a really popular kind of kind of upscale bar down there in the Auburn area mm-hmm and one night, you know, and you do like the way it works, you do like three 45 minute sets. So you play like a nine okay. o'clock set, 10 o'clock set, 11 o'clock set. And, you know, solo acoustic. And I'm playing, and there's this guy who's really inebriated with his friends, and he just keeps saying this really loud Average, average. No. And so I'm just like um, carrying on. <laughs> 
And as 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 he keeps going on, he he kind of escalates it, and he's like, "You suck, man! You suck!" And I'm just like, at this point, I'm like, like there's one part, you know, anger, one to like go out into the crowd and like wrestle the guy, of and course, one, and one part like depression, like maybe he's right, <laughs> maybe I'm terrible. What am I doing with my life? Why am I here? Absolutely, you know, why am I still playing this small place? Thankfully, it ended with this. He finally just just started uh, chanting "average" really loud. Average, and he was he was so drunk he couldn't even open his eyes. And oh he uh, he he got escorted out. Richard just all of a sudden heard it from the bar, came out and grabbed the guy by the collar, and literally just threw him out the door. And the crowd erupted in cheers. For, oh, really? For Richard, and I was like, yes, a bad show gone gone good. Absolutely vindicated. Fairly vindicated. And then a second one that's pretty funny. Uh, we were playing this place called the Windjammer in, in the, outside of Charleston, and it's the same same kind of place. There's like a mixture of people that come to the show, and then a mixture of people who are like at the beach, just sure. Hey, there's music. Let's go. We'll pay our ten bucks. Mm-hmm. And there was this really drunk guy who kept coming up to the front of the stage, and he kept yelling for Piano Man, like play Piano Man. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're not a guy. cover. We're not a cover band. And 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 then there's also not even a piano on stage. You know, we're like a four-piece rock and roll band without a piano. And so, uh, after a while, he he does it in between every song. He's done it in between like four songs. He's getting really annoying. He did have the, the kindness not to do it while we were singing, but in between each song, he would say, "Play piano, man! Come on, play piano, man!" Mm-hmm. So, finally, we just said, "All right, y'all, this next song is called Piano Man." And I kind of wink at the rest of the crowd, and he goes, "Yes!" <laughs> and he walks back to the bar. <laughs> and he never came back to the stage again. Like he thought he was drunk enough to think that we had played it. There's something to be said about giving uh, power get a little bit to the ridiculous people. Yeah, sure. Enough to make them either shut them down or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> whatever it is. Well, I, I know for a lot of friends and people yell "free bird" at concerts. Which I just think that didn't really happen that much at concerts because we usually play places where people like they come to see us. Play. Right. They're not. Right. It's intentional. Yeah, yeah. It's not like a, a cover band bar, but still, you get those people that do it. And uh, every once in a while, that'll happen. You know, we'll just say, "Yeah, come on up. You want to play it? Come on up and play it." Yeah. And they're always like, "Yeah, totally not into that idea." So, <laughs> well, Drew, thank you so much yeah, for, for, for taking the time to do yeah. this.